0: All right, our text for this hour is 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. And I'll read it while you're turning there. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And as we look at that passage in this hour, I want to begin, as always, by making sure you understand something of the context here. Peter is urging his readers to holy living. And notice he's writing verses 1 and 2 to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, He's writing to saints who were in exile. They were living away from their actual homes. Pilgrims of the dispersion, he calls them. So these were Christians who had been scattered throughout the Roman Empire because of the persecution that occurred in the time of Nero. Nero, you know, was a megalomaniac and a madman who ruled Rome for about 14 years, from AD 54. To sixty-eight, And his cruelty and his appetite for evil were notorious. He murdered his own mother. He openly carried on an adulterous relationship with a mistress who was married to another man. He divorced his wife on false pretenses and elevated his mistress to the position of Empress of Rome. And at one point, his mistress bore him a daughter who died in infancy. Then she became pregnant again, and, but before the child was delivered, he flew into a rage over something one day and kicked her. And that caused her unborn child, she and her unborn child, both died. He kicked her so hard. So all of this was well known throughout Rome. And Nero made no attempt to cover up what an evil man he was. He ruled by fear. And Nero was also an ambitious man who loved to build magnificent buildings in his own honor. He often said he thought Rome was ugly, and he wished he could rebuild it. And he he especially wanted to build for himself a golden palace in the heart of the city. But there was just one problem. There was no room to build it. And so when fire broke out in the heart of Rome in July of the year 64, there was widespread suspicion that the fire had actually been started on Nero's orders. And it was a huge fire, burned for six days. It was fanned and spread by high winds, and it destroyed major portions of the city of Rome. And then when the fire had almost burned out for lack of fuel, Another fire started up in a different part of the city, and in the end, seven of the 14 districts of Rome were totally destroyed, half the city. Half of the people in the city were left homeless and reduced to poverty. Everything they owned was burned. So when reports began to circulate that Nero actually watched the fire from a nearby tower and remarked about how beautiful it was, he was in serious political trouble and so he accused christians of starting the fires and that began the first major official persecution from rome against christianity and historians of that era recorded that in the months that followed christians were captured and sewn up in the skins of animals and then let to be left to be torn to death by dogs and nero seemed to delight in Seeing how cruelly he could persecute the Christians, he captured some of them, tied them to stakes, set them ablaze as human torches to light his garden parties at night. And naturally, Christians began to flee Rome and and they went to the most remote areas of the Roman Empire to try to get away from Nero, it was to some of those Christians in exile that Peter wrote this epistle. Verse 1, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you look those all up on the map, you'd find they're all regions of Asia Minor, the Turkish peninsula. And I want you to notice that All of the themes Peter introduces in the opening verses of this epistle are the same themes that carry through our passage and and all of the immediate context. For example, he addresses them as sojourners and pilgrims, verse 1, and in verse 17 he takes up this idea that they are sojourners on this earth, that they are actually citizens of heaven living in exile on the earth. And that applies, of course, to you and me as well, all of us as Christians. We're citizens of heaven. We're living here as exiles and strangers. He addresses them as the elect of God, verse 2, and he continues to refer to them as those who call on the Father, verse 17, people who have been redeemed, verse 18. He speaks of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ in verse 2, and he speaks again of Christ's blood as the redemption price, In verse 19. And all of those same themes, drawn from the horrible circumstances of their exile, became the arguments that he uses in verses 13 through 19 to encourage them to pursue holiness. Look at verses 15 and 16. As he which hath called you is holy, so you be holy in all manner of your life, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Now that's the key verse of this epistle. Everything he says throughout this letter underscores and expounds on that exhortation to holiness. It's what he's writing them about. And, and, and that's significant, isn't it? I mean, notice, think about who he's writing to, the political circumstances. What these people suffered was far worse than what we suffered as Christians under the COVID crisis. We think of that as you know government persecution, and to a large degree it was. But it wasn't anything like this. These people are suffering unbelievable setbacks. And I want you to notice, he doesn't organize a political revolt against Rome. He doesn't try to stir up the Christians to demonstrate against Nero. He's he's not protesting their treatment, as cruel as it was. You know he couldn't have approved of it. But he doesn't spend time in this letter protesting it. He's not trying to incite rebellion against the Roman government. He has one concern. And one concern only, he wants Christians to be Christ-like, holy in all their conduct. That's the context, and that is the historical setting of this passage, and it's remarkable. Again, the heart of this chapter and the, the focus of this whole epistle is the call to holiness in verses 15 and 16, and notice especially the first order of business he gives them, verses 13 and 14, therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. So it's militant language. Gird up the loins of your mind. That's that's the kind of order you would give to a soldier as you're sending him into battle. Gird up, you know, that's basically... uh, pull your tunic up and tie it off so it doesn't tangle up your legs when you need to move as a soldier. It's his militant language, but the battle he wants them to fight is not a campaign against Rome. It's not a conflict against Nero. It's not a war against persecution. It's a struggle against their own lusts. He's urging them to holiness. And the battleground here is their own minds. This is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. This is what Christian warfare is all about. It's a fight against sin, and it is first and foremost a personal warfare against our own carnal desires. And although we are beset in this world by opposition from the enemies of truth and and people who would persecute and abuse us, this world is our mission field. It's not our battlefield. Rome and Nero and the rest of the pagan world, these are not our main enemies. Our main enemies are our own carnal desires. So that is where Peter focuses our attention. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, paraphrases verse 13 this way. He says, what what Paul is saying here is, you have a, what Peter is saying rather, you have a journey to go, a race to run, a warfare to accomplish, and a great work to do as the traveler, the racer, the warrior, and the laborer gather in and gird up their long and loose garments, so that they may be more ready, prompt, and expeditious in their business, so do you. By your minds, your inner man and your affections, seated there gird them, gather them in. Don't let them hang loose and neglected about you, but restrain their extravagances, and let the loins or the strength and vigor of your minds be exerted in your duty, disengage yourselves from all that would hinder you, and go on resolutely in your obedience. And then Matthew Henry goes on to say, the main work of a Christian relies in the right management of his own heart and mind. That's why the apostles' first direction here is to gird up the loins of the mind. And so in the midst of all the dangers and all the opposition that these Christians were facing, Peter's first and most important exhortation was to call them to personal holiness. And persecution, you know, has a purpose and it is to conform us to the image of Christ as he suffered. It is our duty to suffer and the fires of persecution have a purifying effect. So Peter encourages these believers to rejoice in the midst of their trials, verses six and seven, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tested with fire, may be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So he says, pursue that end by cultivating holiness, starting with your thought life, That's what the true Christian warfare is all about. Now, you might think that's a surprising and unexpected response from an apostle who is writing to encourage Christians who are suffering unrighteously from some undeserved uh, persecution. But that is the consistent message of scripture. Chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, for what glory is it if, When you're buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently. But if when you do well you suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. For even unto this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So in the Christian warfare, Christ is our captain and our commander and our example, and we're called to follow his example. And that starts on the battlefield of our own heart and minds. The apostle Paul likewise said in Philippians 2 verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you want if you want to be Christ-like, you have to gird up your mind. If you want to win the Christian warfare, you have to cultivate holiness in your thought life. You have to be renewed. You have to be uh, renewed by the. You have to be sanctified by the renewing of your mind. And notice the standard of holiness here is as high a standard as it can possibly be. Verse sixteen is a quotation from Leviticus 11:44, Leviticus 19 verse 2, and Leviticus 20 verse 7. All three of those verses say exactly the same thing, and it's God who's speaking there, and he says, "Be holy, for I am holy." That's the immediate context of our passage. And I, and I want to take it up this afternoon right at that point, beginning in verse 17. These three verses, verses 17 through 19, actually make a single sentence, and they give us one complete thought. Peter is employing the imagery of redemption, and out of that imagery, he gives us three reasons to be holy. He says we should be holy because we are the sons of a holy God, and we should be holy because we are sojourners in an unholy world, And we should be holy because we are slaves who have been purchased by a holy sacrifice. So we'll let that be our outline as as we look at this passage. Three points, and I hope you take them down in your notes. I'll give them to you again, one point at a time. First, we ought to pursue holiness because we are the sons of a holy God. Look how verse 17 begins. And if you call on the Father, and if there isn't introducing a hypothetical idea. It's used in a sense that means because. Since you call on the Father, and he's speaking to Christians in general, referring to them as those who call on the Father. If you call on the Father, if you're a Christian, be holy. And you do this by passing the time of your sojourning here in fear. It's tied logically and grammatically to verse 16 where God himself says be holy because I'm holy God is holy and since we call him our father we ought to be holy as well nothing is more natural than for children to be like their father and look also at verse 14 we are expressly told to do this to pursue holiness as obedient children somewhere In the catalog of my sermons online, you might find a message I did once on the subject of God's holiness from Isaiah 57, verse 15, which says, thus says the high and holy one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place. And two of the main points that you, you might draw from that passage in Isaiah are, number one, that God's holiness should cause us to fear him, and number two, his holiness should motivate us to imitate him. And Peter is saying both of those same things in this context. Look first at all at the command to imitate God's holiness. It's explicit in verse 16. It is written, be holy for I am holy. And again, the standard is set as high as it can possibly be because God's holiness is perfect. The command is also as comprehensive as possible, verse 15, as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The King James Version says, be holy in all manner of conversation. The Greek expression actually speaks of much more than just our verbal conversation. It means to be holy in every aspect of your life, not only your conduct and your conversation, but also your thoughts and your treatment of people, including both your friends and your enemies, your business dealings, your private behavior, and even the secret desires of your heart. Be holy in all of those things. So the demand for holiness is utterly comprehensive. And you have to ask, who can do this? How can we be as holy as God is holy? Who is sufficient for these things? Paul asks that question in a different conduct and answers it by saying our only sufficiency is from God. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. God empowering us by his Holy Spirit, we can embrace that goal and strive toward it, but because of the remnants of sin in us, we won't achieve that goal in this life, but it is an achievable goal, and we will achieve it when we are glorified, when we see Christ, when we be made like him. But still, the pattern doesn't diminish just because the command is impossible to obey perfectly. God is the pattern and the mold and the model of perfect holiness. He sets the standard to which we must aspire and because he's absolutely perfect, he can't set a standard that is less than perfect. That would compromise his own perfection. But that shouldn't discourage us. It should simply keep us pressing towards that goal. We're to be imitators of him. And although it's obvious we can never equal him in holiness, we still follow after that goal. And therefore, as obedient children, verse 14, we must consciously and willfully reprogram our thoughts and gird up our minds and resist the habits of our former lusts and cultivate an inward appetite for holy things. That is the pathway to holiness. And it's a simple command, really, but obedience to it is not so easy. Notice, it doesn't allow for exceptions. Be holy in all manner of conversation, in every aspect of your life. It tolerates no imperfections. As he who has called you is holy, so you be holy. It's the same standard that Jesus set in Matthew five forty-eight, where he said, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. So the perfection of God is the standard that is set for us to pursue. It sets a goal that we won't reach in this life, but don't let that discourage you. By God's grace, we will be made perfectly sinless and as much like Christ as any mere creature ever could be when we see him and we are finally glorified. In the meantime, it's our duty to keep pressing towards that goal even now. The Apostle Paul wrote about that very idea in the the pursuit of his own personal holiness as he gave his testimony in in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. He says, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after... If that I may apprehend that for which I am also apprehended of Christ, brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And if we are privileged by God's grace to call him Father, then we ought to act like his children we're sons of a holy God. That is the first and most basic incentive to a holy life. Here's another one. If you're taking notes, this is point two, a second argument for why we should be holy. Number two, because we are sojourners in an unholy world. We're sojourners in an unholy world. Now remember, I said that God's holiness ought to inspire us to imitate him, and it also ought to arouse fear of him. Peter appeals to that motive of fear in the second half of verse 17. If you call on the father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. So God is not only our father, he is also a righteous judge and that knowledge ought to keep us in fear. Proverbs 9 verse 10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. And Peter's writing to people who are living in exile, and they knew what constant fear is like. And he borrows from their experience to help frame the perspective of what the life and outlook of every Christian ought to be like. We are exiles and expatriates in this sin-cursed world, and yet we are citizens of heaven whose sojourn here is only temporary, we ought to live in fear, not a craven fear of worldly persecution, but a holy fear of the righteous judge of heaven and earth who, without respect of person and without partiality, judges according to every man's work. And unholiness, a lack of holiness, incurs God's displeasure, and a fear of his displeasure ought to shape the way we live. Now, someone will say, do do we as Christians really need to fear God's displeasure? Because after all, we're justified. We're clothed with a perfect righteousness of Christ. So what is there to fear in the knowledge that God is a righteous judge? Because after all, Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, what do we have to fear? Jesus himself said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but has passed from death unto life. That's John five twenty four and John three eighteen. He who believes on him is not condemned. The judgment of condemnation for our sins was already borne by Christ on the cross. If you're a believer, and that's true. But God is never pleased with sin, and when we sin, we still incur incur his fatherly displeasure, not his condemnation as a judge, but his displeasure as a father. Remember that when David sinned, even though God had said, David was a man after his own heart, even though God had said in Psalm 89, 26, that David would call him father, even though David was justified, and in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, he celebrates the fact that his transgressions are forgiven and his sin is covered, and so God would not impute sin to him. Nevertheless, when David sinned, scripture says in 2 Samuel eleven twenty-seven 27, that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And Peter is saying, we ought to fear that displeasure, because the one whom we call upon as father is still the righteous judge of heaven and earth. True, he's not going to send us to hell, but you should fear his displeasure anyway. And therefore, Peter says, verse 17, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. He's not speaking about their sojourn as Romans living in Asia Minor. He's addressing them as citizens of heaven who are pilgrims and sojourners in a hostile world. And that's imagery, by the way, that scripture frequently uses to speak of us as believers, all believers, David's prayer, recorded in 1 Chronicles 29.15, says, we are strangers before you, he's praying to God, and sojourners, as were all our fathers, our all our days on the earth are as a shadow and and there is none abiding. And David also wrote Psalm 39, verse 12. I'm a stranger with you and a sojourner, as all my fathers were. Hebrews eleven thirteen, speaking of all of the great heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, says this. They all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded that they were true and they embraced them and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They didn't belong here. so why Abraham, though he was promised a great land and, and, and to be the father of many nations, and he never saw in his lifetime the fulfillment of those promises, he understood that he's only a stranger and pilgrim on this earth, that the promises go beyond that and look beyond that. And so, as the redeemed people of God, as saints and members of God's household, All the remainder of our earthly lives are spent as strangers and pilgrims here on earth. This is not our home. Don't get too comfortable here. Because Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter is pointing out that's an incentive for holiness. That's one of the arguments he's using here in our passage for why we ought to be holy. It's the very reason he's going to give in chapter 2 verse 11 for saying that we should abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul because we don't belong to this world and if we're citizens of heaven living in exile here why should all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, why should that be any part of our thinking? It doesn't pertain to us because after all Those things are not of the Father, they are of the world. And so we should be holy, first, because we are sons of a holy God, second, because we are sojourners in an unholy world. And now if you're taking notes, here's a third argument for why we should be holy. Because, number three, we are slaves redeemed by a holy sacrifice. Verses 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain way of life received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. So we've been redeemed by the highest, holiest price that was ever paid for redemption. The highest ransom price ever paid was paid for us. Peter's first century readers were very familiar with the slave markets where people were regularly bought and sold for silver and gold. And if a slave wanted to become a free person, he had to earn the price to buy himself out of the slave market. Freedom like that usually came at a great cost. And sometimes a benefactor would pay the redemption price and set a slave free, and that's the imagery that Peter has borrowed to describe our redemption from slavery to sin. That redemption came at the highest conceivable price because it cost the sinless son of God, the eternal son of God, his own lifeblood, which is a price we could never have obtained on our own. And so we are eternally in debt to Christ and enslaved to him because he bought us, rightfully enslaved to him, because that's what our redemption cost him, his blood. It's the ultimate incentive to be holy. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 verses 26 through 29 that if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, that's like treading underfoot the Son of God and counting the blood of the covenant by which we are sanctified, an unholy thing. It's like trampling the precious redemption price that Christ paid for us. We were redeemed with that which is most holy, therefore we ought to be holy. You, you don't count the blood of Christ an unholy thing, and by living an unholy life, that's exactly what you're doing. So we're not redeemed with perishable things, even priceless commodities like silver and gold, but we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And of course, that's hearkening back to the Old Testament sacrificial system and saying that Christ is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, uh, and that is the price he paid to set us free. The redemption price of slavery to sin is pictured throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system. And Peter so is reminding his readers that the price of their salvation was an atoning sacrifice. They're not forgiven just out of the bounty of God's good will. They are forgiven because their sins have been paid for by an atoning sacrifice, and in this case, a violent, bloody death inflicted on a spotless, innocent lamb. Just to show the exceeding sinfulness of sin. and I want, you to, I want to make sure that you understand the Old Testament, the, that, that the whole sacrificial system there simply foreshadowed and pictured the atoning work of Christ. It was a symbol that pointed forward to something greater. I hope you understand that even in the Old Testament, no one was actually saved by any animal sacrifices. No sins were actually and effectually atoned for by animal blood. Those sacrifices were only graphic pictures that foreshadowed the work of Christ on the cross. And scripture is clear about this. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. And verse 12 says that Christ shed his blood and gave his life in order to offer one sacrifice for sins forever, and then he sat down on the right hand of God. In other words, Christ's blood was the only sufficient sacrifice for sins, and it was a sufficient sacrifice for sins forever. Everyone who was ever saved in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament era, All of the redeemed of all time were purchased by this unimaginably precious redemption price. This one sacrifice for sins forever. Even the sins that had been been covered over by, just artificially covered over by animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. The Old Testament saints were saved in anticipation of what Christ would do on the cross. New Testament saints are saved by that same sacrifice that was offered once for all. And this is important. Remember, Peter is exhorting us to live holy lives, but in the process he's also reminding us that our own holiness is not the reason for our salvation. Anyone who trusts His own righteousness to make him acceptable to God is trusting a lie because, as we've seen, the standard of God's righteousness is absolute perfection and we don't meet that demand. None of us do. But Christ met it for us. He perfectly fulfilled all of the demands of God's law and then he offered his own spotlessly holy life as a payment for our sins. Payment in full. We don't pursue holiness in order to merit any kind of acceptance from God. Our own flawed holiness is not the basis of our redemption. Holiness is a fruit of our redemption, not the cause for it. And Peter is saying that the real meritorious cause of salvation, the precious blood of Christ, is also the highest and most supreme argument for why we ought to live holy lives, even though our sins are already paid for and and they're forgiven and they're covered forever, having been redeemed at such a high cost, we're now debtors to the grace of God and that's why we must be holy. That's the argument Peter's making. It's a simple one, and he speaks in unqualified language about the infinite value of Christ's blood. There's a lot of misunderstanding and superstition about this. What does scripture mean when it says Christ's blood is precious and imperishable? Is he, is he suggesting that there was some property in the actual plasma and corpuscles that, that made Christ's blood precious? Some say yes. They teach that Christ's blood was somehow different from normal human blood And that because Peter says we aren't redeemed by perishable things, Christ's physical blood must have been literally imperishable and that the actual blood was somehow gathered up after the crucifixion and taken to heaven where it is eternally preserved at some heavenly mercy seat. They would point in that, for example, to Acts 20, verse 28, where it speaks of the church of God which he, that is God, in the person of Christ, has purchased with his own blood. And so they say, well, that means that Christ's blood wasn't human blood. It's the blood of God with divine properties. And those properties of his physical blood, those are what makes the blood of Christ efficacious and, and, you know, worthy of our redemption, those supernatural divine properties of Christ's physical blood, the blood of God, are also what makes it so precious. That was a a view popularized many years ago by M.R. DeHaan, who some of you may remember him from the radio. He's a former medical doctor who was also a gifted Bible teacher, and he founded the Ministry of Radio Bible Class, which is still on the air. Dr. DeHaan wrote a book called The Chemistry of Christ's Blood, in which he argued that the blood of Christ was supernatural and inhuman, he said. And he concluded, unfortunately, that there was some chemical property in Christ's blood that made it precious and imperishable. And to be fair, Dr. Ihan was usually a better theologian than that. But in this case, I think he let his medical speculation get the better of him, and he ended up teaching that the chemistry of Christ's blood was somehow unique and supernatural, and that is not what this means. This, that cannot be what this means because it would deny that Christ is truly human. Christ's blood was the blood of God incarnate in the same way that his body was the body of God incarnate. I hope you understand, though, that he was fully and completely and truly human. His physical body and the physical blood that flowed through his veins were not superhuman in any sense. To think otherwise is to fall into the same error that was taught by the Gnostics who denied that it was impossible for God to be incarnated in a real physical, totally human form. They insisted that Jesus only looked human, he only seemed human, but his body and his blood, they said, were supernatural and spiritual, divine, not truly human. And That is a heresy known as docetism. It's a serious error because It makes Jesus something other than fully human, and therefore it nullifies the truth of 1 Timothy 2.5 that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. More than 30 years ago now, a well-known fundamentalist magazine published an attack on John MacArthur over this issue. They claimed that he was a heretic because he taught that Christ's literal blood didn't have any magical or supernatural property that made it efficacious for salvation. They accused him of denying the power of Christ's blood. And then later that same year, a group that was known as the World Congress on Fundamentalism issued a statement claiming that they believe Christ's blood is eternally preserved in heaven, kept in some vial or something, where by some means it is being literally applied to every believer... And so in their zeal to label John MacArthur's position heresy, they ended up teaching heresy themselves because they denied the true, deity, the true humanity of Christ. But this is an issue that still comes up all the time. In fact, nearly every month I have to answer letters from people who have heard that you know, John MacArthur denies the power of Jesus' blood and they want an explanation. So here's a summary of what I tell them. When Christ, when Scripture speaks of Christ's blood, it's a much bigger concept than just the literal physical fluid that flows in his veins. When we sing gospel songs about being washed in the blood of Christ and the wonder-working power of the blood, and when we sing, there's a fountain filled with blood, I hope you don't imagine that there is some magical or chemical cleansing property in the physical blood of Christ. That's not what any of those expressions mean. I hope you don't imagine that Christ's blood or his earthly body were anything other than truly and literally human. But when the Bible speaks, as it does in our text, about the precious blood of Christ, it's speaking about his sacrificial atonement. It's, it's the very same kind of figurative language that the Apostle Paul is using when he says in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he spoke of the preaching of the cross, he had in mind there the death of Christ, not the literal wooden instrument on which Christ died. You get that, right? The preaching of the cross That's an expression that describes the preaching of the crucifixion. And not just the act itself, but what it accomplished. It's the atonement. That's what's important. And I hope no one would ever have the idea that when we quote those verses, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross, we're not saying that a piece of wood is the point of our preaching. But in the same way, Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, with his stripes we are healed. Peter quotes that same expression right here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, by whose stripes you are healed. And that language is not talking about the marks on Christ's body after he was flogged. It has that concept in mind. But the point is the totality of Christ's sacrifice not just the marks left on Christ's body by a Roman whip. And Peter's using the very same kind of metaphor or figurative language in our text. And when he speaks of the blood of Christ, he does not have in mind just the physical fluid. He's using that expression to represent the full price of our atonement, which entailed the shedding of literal physical blood. It was absolutely part of that price, It was necessary in the redemptive plan of God that Christ would die in a way that involved violent bloodshed. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was God himself who chose crucifixion and not strangling or drowning as the means by which Christ would atone for our sins. And for that very reason, nearly all of the Old Testament sacrifices for sin it also involved the literal shedding of blood. The blood of those sacrifices was collected and sprinkled all over the altar and the mercy seat, and even sprinkled on the people who brought the offerings in order to be a graphic and visible and powerful reminder of the price of atonement. The shedding of one's lifeblood, the giving of life. Why? Leviticus 17.11 says, because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. And that's why Hebrews 9.22 says almost all things under the law are purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. So the literal shedding of blood was a necessary aspect of the atonement price, but bleeding alone wasn't the point. Remember, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and the point of the bloodshed was the visible pouring out of that life. Dying, not merely bleeding, but dying, was the price of atonement. And if Christ had shed his blood without dying, the full price of our sins would not have been paid And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 and Romans 5 verse 8 both say Christ died for our sins. It was death, not merely the bleeding part, but the death, the pouring out of his lifeblood, that was the price of our sin. And I think most of you understand that. I just think it's important when we read texts like this not to be thinking of the literal red fluid as if that's somehow supernatural. It's not. It was, it was the fact that that blood was poured out in death that substituted as the payment for our sins. And not only that, but the real meaning of the cross is seen in the fact that it was God who required that this price be paid. This is the really hard part. God is the one who demanded this price, and the suffering he inflicted on his son was not merely the pain of physical torture or the literal shedding of blood. It included those things, but the heart of Christ's atoning work is seen in the fact that Christ bore the wrath of God on our behalf. We sing about this sometimes too, and it's important to keep in mind there are people who would love to purge, purge this idea from our hymnology, but Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. In other words, God did this Christ was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. That's Isaiah 53 verse 5, and that's why scripture says in Acts 2.23 that Christ was delivered by the determinate foreknowledge counsel and foreknowledge of God. And Acts 4.28 says that what happened on the cross was precisely what God's hand and his counsel determined before to be done. God punished his own son for the sins of his people, and that is the true price of atonement. The full cost. And it was visible because the blood was shed. And when Peter uses this expression, the precious blood of Christ, he has all of that in mind. In other words, Christ's blood is precious not because of any property in the blood itself, not because it was superhuman or supernatural, but because Christ himself is infinitely precious to God, and yet despite God's great love for his own son, he loved sinners enough to redeem them at so high a price that he sacrificed what was literally most precious to him, why the truth of John 3.16 is so amazing. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So I hope you see why Peter speaks of Christ's blood as infinitely precious. I hope you don't apply a wooden literalness to that statement that reduces the means of our salvation to some kind of magical or mystical property or chemical property in the physical blood. That sort of error is actually what made medieval Christianity and modern Roman Catholicism so superstitious in their sacramentalism. It reduces the great spiritual truth of our redemption to things that must be literal, physical, visible, eternal things, and it actually thereby diminishes the rich truth in this passage. But I hope you also grasp something of the infinite value of the price that was paid for your redemption. And if you do, that should be a powerful motive to be holy. That's what this passage means. No more, no less... You were redeemed by the sacrifice of something infinitely holy and precious to God, the pouring out of his own son's lifeblood in payment for your sins. Therefore, honor him by being holy because he who has called you is holy. Let's pray. Father, you are holy, and we confess that we are not, and perfect holiness is seems to us unattainable, but keep our eyes on that goal. Keep us pressing towards that prize. Hold us fast and keep pushing us ahead as we are conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ that you might be glorified in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.